Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. That is a most human question, because of all the known species in the universe, only we understand the concept of truth with a capital T. As moral beings, most of us, at least to some extent, seek to live out our lives in what we conceive of as truth. Thus, in an earlier Humanize interview, the animal rights leader Gary Francione argued on behalf of veganism, that is, to eschew a natural, omnivorous human diet in the service of a higher moral purpose. In my conversation with the transhumanism proselytizer Zoltan Istvan, he described his quest to become immortal through the wonders of technology based on the materialistic assumption that what we see in the world is all that is. Today, we are going to explore a religious concept of discerning and living truth, the practical and the mystical, with the Catholic popularizer and apologist Catherine Jean Lopez. Catherine Jean Lopez, also known affectionately as Kalo, is the former editor and current editor-at-large for National Review Online. She is also a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. An award-winning opinion journalist, Lopez is also a nationally syndicated columnist with United Media's Newspaper Enterprise Association. Lopez's work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, the Human Life Review, First Things, and Stars and Stripes, and on the websites of the New York Times, CNN, and other international publications. She writes frequently for a variety of Catholic publications, including Our Sunday Visitor, and is a columnist for the National Catholic Register and the Knights of Columbus's Headline Bistro. Lopez is a frequent guest on national and international radio and television programs from PBS and CNN to EWTN and Vatican Radio. She speaks frequently on faith and public life, the dignity of human life, and feminism, among other topics. She's addressed audiences at events sponsored by Legatus, the Knights of Columbus, the American Political Science Association, the Heritage Foundation, the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars, the Milken Institute, Lincoln Center, and the National Press Club, and has spoken on the campuses of Harvard, Yale, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, and Ava Maria University. Lopez is a graduate of the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where she studied philosophy and politics. She is the author of A Year with the Mystics, Visionary Wisdom for Daily Living. Kalo, welcome to Humanize. Wesley, it's such a joy to be with you. And really good to uh, talk with you. You know, you've become uh, very active in the last few years in discussing religious questions more than political. What caused you to take that turn? Well, a couple of things. One was the death of William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review. When he died, it's probably a year within his death, poor Smith Abbey in New England um, had a conference on, on Bill Buckley's life and work. And they asked me to give a speech on um, Bill Buckley as a Catholic journalist. And I remember at the time thinking, I'm going to read everything Bill wrote on faith and I am still discovering things <laughs> here and there because he had a newspaper column that ran three times a week. He wrote, I forget, 40-something books, maybe 60-something. I'm bad at math. <laughs> he, um, he wrote for National Review. He wrote for the New York Times. He wrote for, for all these places. So there's a lot of opportunity. He also had Firing Line, um, public affairs show that was the longest running for until very recently on PBS. And he had 
He had Saul, everyone from Saul Linsky to Marcho Grouch to Mother Teresa and Cardinal O'Connor and Fulton Sheen too. And so um, I, uh, that gave me a lot, of, a lot of freedom to write about, start writing about things I cared most about. And also when Pope Benedict resigned, all of a sudden that day, I remember friends with Fox News contracts, Jonah Goldberg said, just give her my seat on, on the All-Stars on Brett Baer's show. I have no idea what to say. She'll know what to say. And so everyone had these questions about the Catholic Church. And so that was another moment. Obviously, Pope Francis has been in the news a thousand times a day. And so um, there's an interest in religion. And so that freed me up to be able to write a lot more about and, it. And so it's interesting that Bill Buckley, who was thought of as a political person, uh, you know, starting the National Review, uh, conservative and so forth, uh, actually inspired you to become more of a, uh, a Christian apologist. Yeah. And actually, the book you mentioned, A Year with the Mystics, I felt justified in using National Review Institute time in writing it because Bill had a chapter in his book on faith, Near My God, which was precisely about mysticism and about how it helps him understand the passion and, and God more. And so, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Bill, you know, when I say he wrote about faith, it could be commentary on the latest papal encyclical. It could be a crime story that involved confession, you know, and, and the people, the, the police trying to get the, the priest to reveal the confession, which of course he can't do. Um, you know, faith would come up in many ways. But one thing that's so striking to me is that if you read the body of his speeches, which again, it's probably impossible to read all of them, and they all—they don't always exist in print. Um, but they're, they're, let us talk about many things is is the classic collection um, that was put together during his life. He talks about the Beatitudes. He talks about Bethlehem. Um, he never shied away from faith. It made made make made things make sense to him. And of course, that didn't mean to be conservative. You had to be a religious believer, but you had to want them to be around. You know, <laughs> that's very very interesting. As we get into this, I want to read a biblical passage, which, by the way, is a first on human eyes, uh, <laughs> that I think will be a good foundation for our conversation. And this is from Luke. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is the need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, it seems to me that Mary and Martha are archetypes. Mary represents the mystical side of human yearning. And Martha, who was a very faithful person, for example, we know that uh, she, was, she and Mary were Lazarus's sisters, that when the Lord was coming to Lazarus after Lazarus died, Martha's the one who ran out and said, if you'd only been here, he would not have died. So it's not like she wasn't faithful. She was. Uh, but she was also the practical person in mm -hmm. service, taking care of what needed to be done. And I note that Christ did not say to Martha, stop serving your guests. So it seems to me he was only saying, don't, don't rag on Mary because she's, you know, choosing the more mystical approach. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. I, we all have our roles. And um, I'll, I'll make another strange uh, analogy or, or reference. I remember at um, National Review's 50th anniversary party at the National Building Museum, Rush Limbaugh was one of our speakers. And Rush was, um, <clears throat> there were a number of wounded Marines who wanted to speak to him. And when they were presented to Rush, he was completely embarrassed and said, what on earth have I deserved, you know, being in your company? And one of the Marines, and these are these guys have all lost limbs, and, and I think they had come back from Afghanistan. And um, one of the Marines said to him, Mr. Limbaugh, we all have our roles. And I always think that's an essential point and so connected to what you just read from the Bible. Um, some of us, you know, uh, my, my temperament 
an approach is very different than Rush Limbaugh's was. Yeah. So aren't we all (laughs) right. But, but I also think, you know, without defending everything he ever said, you know, there's, there's room for more entertaining kind of commentary there. There's room for all of this. And one thing I'll say about Rush is among other things, he was a great defender of innocent human life in his years on the radio. Again, my point is, going back to how Jesus approached these two friends of his was, yeah, yeah, you both have your part. But I also think that the second lesson from it is we both have to be both Mary and Martha. Yes. I was going to get to that at the end, but you you beat me to it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. We can't just be doers and we can't just be contemplative because we have to, first of all, we have to live in the world, you know, um, for the contemplative, um, but also to do, you need to contemplate. And so um, we all have our roles. We also have different roles at different times, you know. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, let's start by discussing the practical side of living out truth. Uh, you know, regular listeners to this podcast know that I hold individuals who break through to bring positive change to the world in especially high regard. In this regard, I think of uh, William Lloyd Garrison and my mentor, Ralph Nader, as two such individuals. Another one was the late Dorothy Day, uh, co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. You've been very active in promoting her sainthood, but let's first talk about her life and what she accomplished. Who was Dorothy Day? So she she's known best as a social activist who uh, co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement and so was anti-war and, and, and many, many of these things that are considered more left-wing positions. Um, so often when I talk about her in conservative p- circles, people kind of look at me like, huh? <laughs> um, but one of the things I love about Dorothy Day, first of all, she, her, her goal was, she was a convert, a Catholic convert. And, um, after her conversion, all she wanted to do was live the gospel in, in radical ways, live the Beatitudes. And sometimes the, that wasn't clear exactly what to do. Sometimes that was messy, but she, she went all in, in the mess um, uh, had these Catholic worker homes um, in New York City, and, and then it would spread um, where she would take in whoever needed help. Um, and she de- dealt with a lot of people with mental illness and, and all of these things that you'll, you'd find on the streets of New York any day now, um, which is, a, again, why I, you know, I feel close to her because she was a writer. Um, because, um, because she lived in New York. Um, she, she, uh, she frequented a lot of the churches that I frequent, including the, there was one famous, um, story moment where she was at a, she was covering a political protest in Washington and she went to the Basilica of the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is adjacent to Catholic university where I went. So I've spent many, many a time there and, and she just, committed to doing God's will, whatever it was for her to live the gospel more radically. And so, as you mentioned, her, her sainthood cause just went um, to Rome. The first step, um, the Archdiocese of New York had to do an investigation about her life and her holiness and interview people who, who knew her. Um, and so that was actually a very beautiful mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which was the anniversary of that, that experience in Washington. And um, it was beautiful because it just happened to be this, this was just sort of how Cardinal O'Connor, not Cardinal O'Connor, Cardinal Dolan's um, schedule fell. It was the, the monthly young adult mass at the cathedral. And so like one side were the young adults and the one side were the Catholic workers, some of whom were definitely not young adults anymore. And it was this beautiful sort of bringing together of people in the church, you know, um, who, who probably have different musical styles and liturgical styles, but here we are all at the cathedral. And as, different as politics, different politics. Right. Yeah. Different, definitely different politics, probably yeah. in most cases. I find it very interesting because, you know, I've, I, I've always admired her. I'm not Catholic, as you know, but I've admired her. And uh, I read her a biography of hers. And uh, it's interesting that a lot of people think, well, if I become, you know, have this kind of conversion experience, my personality changes. Actually, it doesn't. Uh, if you think of uh, St. Paul, uh, who, you know, was persecuting the church and then had uh, his conversion experience big time on the road to Damascus, his zeal and kind of, um, 
give it a thousand percent personality never changed. Right. And with Dorothy Day, she was a, a socialist or an anarchist, depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, lived at one point a bohemian lifestyle. That certainly changed. Sure. Um, uh, but her, her, her give it everything I have to what I believe in never did change. Right. So, so conversion in the sense that, that she experienced is more of a fulfillment perhaps than a, than a, a change in terms of, Oh, now I have to be different than I was. Right. It really is a fuller freedom. And um, one of the things that I think liberated her too, and one of to speak of the contemplative side again Um, you know, she couldn't solve all the problems in the world and she was liberated to know she didn't have to because she actually had a savior who was going to, to redeem people and, and save them. And so she just needed to serve him, serve them, um, in love of him. And so many times, one of the reasons I love her so much is, um, she, she would, daily go back to Jesus and the blessed sacrament. Catholics believe that the Eucharist is, is Jesus's real presence. And so if you go to a tabernacle, Jesus is present. And she so believed in that and was dedicated to it. And it was really like nourishment for her. Um, you know, she would go to daily mass and, and she would spend time in front of the blessed sacrament and that's what gave her life. And, um, and again, liberated her to know that she didn't have to have it all together. She didn't have to fix everything. And one of the things that I find um, so beautiful about Dorothy Day and why I think she's someone that people really need to know and connect to and why I thought it was beautiful that the young adults too were at that mass is she had an abortion during her life before her conversion. And that's something that she regretted and she asked God for forgiveness for but she wrote about it in Commonweal, um, a, a Catholic sort of left-wing magazine, at the end of her days in the 1970s. This was still something that burdened her, even though she knew she was forgiven for, um, because it was an agony for her. She thought she was in love, um, and it was just a big old mess. And um, and also, she wound up having a child out of wedlock. And again, thought she was in love. It's not that she was promiscuous. It was you know, how, how girls often find themselves um, pregnant out of wedlock. And, um, and that she was able to uh, reconcile with God, even, even though it was always a misery because she's human, you know, I, um, I think that she's an example in many ways for, for people today. Um, who what, obviously what, have what led to her conversion? Marriage. It's very interesting because if you look at her early life, she was atheist, I believe. Yeah. She was not raised in a Catholic home. Uh, and yet here she, she suddenly became very devout and then pursued, once she converted, spent the rest of her life, which was probably about 55 extra years or 60 years, something like that, actually trying to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into her faith. What led to that conversion? That's quite a change. Well, one of the things that's interesting about her is from from her earliest days, and I forget if this was a grandmother, I forget the specific influence, but she was drawn to the Psalms. And the Psalms, for anyone who reads the Psalms, like every human emotion is in the Psalms. And there's something very consoling about that, I find, constantly. And so that was that was an area where she connected early. But also living living in Greenwich Village, um, New York, she would find herself frequently frequenting a church I often am at St. Joseph's in Greenwich Village. And there was something there that brought her peace. And so that was a big part of the story, the Psalms, and just sort of having a, 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 a sense of, of peace. Um, you know, she didn't have the language of real presence or anything like that, but there was something in the church that she wanted. And she also, part of that experience at the Basilica in Washington is she felt a conviction. Now she's, she's Catholic at that point, but felt a conviction that, that, that Catholics needed to be living out social Catholic teaching, social teaching in the world in a more radical way. And so she was able to take those original beliefs she had and, and sort of, uh, baptized them in a sense, you know, um, moving from, from anarchy or socialism or whatever, um, on the day, as you said, to, um, to try to live in, in the context of the Beatitudes, um, which is pretty radical. 
<clears throat> yeah, it is radical, and and she was radical. Uh, the, and and the interesting thing is, as you're describing this to me, she was a person seeking truth, and then right. when once she found it, she said, "Okay, I found it. Now I'm going to dig deeper into it." Right. Right. And, and live it as fully as I can. And so I, I know, particularly people who are more conservative who might be listening to this, the word radical might freak them out a little bit. But when I think of radical in the terms of Dorothy Day, I don't think of it as political so much as because at the end of her life, her identity wasn't her politics. Her identity was being a daughter of God. And, and so living radically in that sense is really truly living the gospel. And that means every day being deeper, being converted in a more deeper way. And all of us, uh, you know, anyone who's a, a, a Christian in particular, but a religious believer, um, and also, you know, someone who wants to live a good life, you know, Every day is a new challenge to live it in a more radical way, um, and so that, are that's you talking I, about being authentic? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, Archbishop Gomez from Los Angeles, who's currently the president of the U.S. Catholic Conference of, of Catholic Bishops, he um, he gave a speech a couple of years ago at a conference that I also gave a speech at where he said, I don't know if Dorothy Day is a saint, but I know she makes me want to be one. And um, as someone who lives in New York, I feel like I'm constantly being stalked by Dorothy Day in a good way <laughs> to, um, you know, it's very easy. You go out for groceries or whatever, go to, you're commuting to work. There are so many people you encounter who you could very easily ignore, except if you like woke up and prayed this morning and, you know, dedicated your day to God, then it's kind of impossible to ignore the people begging on the street. Expand on that a bit. Who are the people you're, you're referring to? Well, I, I'm, I'm particularly thinking of in New York, we have um, a huge homeless population and a lot seem to be very clearly mentally ill or addicted to drugs. And so it, it would be easier in one respect in a convenient respect um, to just sort of plow along, you know, so many people are walking with their headsets or whatever, but we can't do that as Christians. And even as human beings, it's not healthy to do that, you know, just pass people by and ignore them. And so I feel like she's stalking me saying, all right, you know, look everybody in the eye and have a conversation and see if you can help with a little, obviously you can't change their lives, but maybe you can help buy them a meal or you can, whatever. You, and you can recognize their equal dignity. Exactly. And what I'm struck by the most is just a little time. I mean, I find myself trying to, I used to be in a rush a lot and I try to make more time because I have no idea who I'm going to encounter or what I'm going to encounter. And I'm just so struck by sometimes, sometimes a person who's living on the street, all they want is to know that someone cares that they're alive and to just listen, there, there's one woman who I've tried to help in various ways, but at the end of the day, the thing she cares about the most is that I actually listen to her yeah. and ask questions and, you know, and, um, but also we can live super transactional lives. You know, I'm just described in ur urban setting, which not everyone's in, but, um, you know, just going to the store or, you know, don't just be transactional. How many, how many times are we tempted to be really short with someone on a phone conversation where we're trying to get a bill in order or order something or whatever it is, you know, no, you're speaking with a human being. Um, it's not their fault. They're part of some crazy bureaucracy where, you know, it takes 15 calls to get something accomplished. Um, all of these things are opportunities to really connect with a human being. At, at some point, Getting back to Dorothy Day, she met a fellow named Peter Morin, uh, and that changed everything. They uh, they ended up creating something quite remarkable. Who was he, and what did they decide to do? Well, she he was the co-founder of the Catholic work, Worker Movement, and she really considered him her mentor. I mean, she wouldn't consider herself the, 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 the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. And she saw in him someone who was really living what Christ set out for people to live, and so really, really followed him. And one thing that 
I've um, encountered in recent years is, I mentioned this conference, it was at St. Francis University in Indiana on Dorothy Day. And it was, it was really beautiful. And it was a discovery for everyone who was there. Because you had people like Archbishop Gomez, um, who obviously is, you know, deep in the heart of the church, right? But then, you know, in the Catholic worker movement, um, since since she died, and I think during her life as well, there's there are elements that have sort of moved away from the Catholic Church who are not sure if they're agnostic or or atheist. But you also have pockets of the Catholic worker movement that are very, very much making sure they're praying morning and evening prayer and having mass and things. So what you had at this conference is, I remember I gave a speech about the continuity in Dorothy Day, John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and Pope Francis. And I blew some minds away, as one or two people said to me, because some of some of the sort of more left wing or or more secular Catholic workers never ever ever would think of of Catholic worker movement or Dorothy Day in the context of a John Paul II or Pope Benedict, but um, and so we had some beautiful conversations actually about that. And um, again, one of the things that that Dorothy Day distinguished Dorothy Day is that she was. She was so dedicated to the Catholic Church. She um, had such a deep respect, even though she would criticize cardinals and bishops, um, but also had such a deep respect for the apostolic succession and 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 all of the rest. The confession, the the sacraments were so important to her, and um, and Peter Morin really helped her in day to day working out like what is this supposed to look like practically. And that's that's the communities they set up with the Catholic worker movement. The Catholic worker yeah. movement, as I understand it, it was almost communal living. Yeah, where uh, people who were in the movement um, would live together and and serve the poor. Right. And um, she actually lived a life of poverty voluntarily. Right. And that continues today, um, not too far from. St. Joseph's Church, I, I mentioned, um, in New York City, there's a, a Catholic worker house. Actually, there are two, St. Mary and St. Joseph. Um, St. Mary, Dorothy used to live at, actually. And and actually, the, the eulogist at her funeral still serves at, at St. Joseph's. Um, he, had, he, he was her final chaplain um, at, at St. Mary's when she was in her, her last days. And, and, and to, a, to a certain degree, she, in a sense, is almost like St. Mother Teresa, uh, in the sense that uh, you know she would serve anybody who was in need. It wasn't saying, "Oh, if you're Catholic, I'll take care of you." Right. It, was, it was anybody because she saw the face of Christ in every person, particularly in poor people. Right. Absolutely. No, she was not checking your baptismal certificate at the door, and and also in whatever way you needed help, which she wasn't always prepared for, but she trusted that God would give her what she needed to be able to serve them. At, at and, its height, how how uh, large was the Catholic worker movement? You know, now now you get me because I'm terrible with numbers, but it it, it ha- what is to this day a national movement and um and I know I like just a couple of months ago, I um met a um a young couple who was reestablishing a Catholic worker house, I think outside of Pittsburgh. And it was so interesting because they, I was sort of watching them meet uh, the Catholic workers in New York City because they were in New York City for, for an event. And um, th- this, this particular young couple in Pennsylvania are very sort of traditionalist. And so, you know, they're wanting to, they're having Latin masses and things in their Catholic worker house. And, and the New York one isn't quite like that, but, but there was this beautiful unity again, like I was talking about at the mass for sending her cause to Rome. Um, and so there, there continues to be something beautiful there. And I think Dorothy Day has a real opportunity to unite people. You know, Wesley, a lot like you, you know, you, you write for National Review for many years, but you're in so many different circles and you're able to talk to so many different people. And, um, because you're just, you're looking for truth. And, and, um, so there's some, you, I see you as a bridge figure too, very much like Dorothy Day. Oh, no, no, no way. But thank you. Uh, she, you know what I mean. I well, mean, but you, you know, I don't have her courage. She was a pacifist during World War II. That took courage. 
That's not easy. <laughs> that does. <laughs> uh, the other thing that strikes me about her is that uh, she was hu- there's humility and obedience, as you, I think you referred to this a little bit earlier. One of my favorite stories was that one of the bishops, uh, I don't remember which one, was really angry with her because she was not she was anti-communist, but not anti-communist in a very odd way. But um, he didn't want her to be able to use the term Catholic for Catholic worker. Mm. And she said, you know, okay, I'll be in obedience, but, uh, you know, we'll be in the church and we'll all be, be praying for you. <laughs> and he, and he kind of said, well, never mind, <laughs> you know, keep using the word Catholic. So she did not uh, violate her obligation of obedience, but she also stood up for herself and for her integrity. And, and also I, I, I know there are some stories too, where, she got into some kind of scuffle with a bishop and, and she would always go back to Jesus and the blessed sacrament in total humility because she believed she was doing the right thing at the time, but she wanted to make sure she really was, you know, and she's God forgive me if, if I, you know, was too harsh or, um, you know, and give me the strength and where she got that courage was from, from God, from her prayer, her life of prayer. And that's moving us toward mysticism, because I said she's the practical, but I also suspect there was a great deal of mysticism in her experience. In fact, she entitled her autobiography, The Great Loneliness. Uh, That makes me think of The Dark Night of the Soul, and it makes me think of Mother Teresa, who uh, we later, after she passed away, found out, uh, spent many years in that kind of dark night of the soul without the active light of faith, but she continued on anyway. Why did uh, Dorothy Day entitle her autobiography, The Great Loneliness? Well, I think this is also, again, why it's so important for people to know about her now, because how many people feel lonely, um, desperately lonely? Some people don't feel desperately lonely, you know, have people around them, but but still feel lonely because there's something missing. And, and it's, I think it's that restlessness that St. Augustine talks about, right? Our hearts are restless until our rest, rest in thee, my God. And, um, and so, yeah, part of that, I think it's important. I think sometimes when, um, when people talk about religious faith, if, if you're not particularly pious or, or don't, don't believe in God or don't know if you believe in God, you think that like, there's some button you press and everything changes, you know? Um, Sometimes St. Paul is a beautiful example because like he would seem to have been hopeless, right? As he was persecuting Christians. And then all of a sudden it changes. But for most people, it doesn't change all of a sudden, you know, it's a gradual ongoing lifetime conversion. Somebody who's a great contemplative author, contemporary is Father Donald Haggerty, who is actually stationed at of all places, St. Patrick's Cathedral in in um, in Midtown Manhattan. And I say of all places because, especially you know, we're taping this around the Christmas season, and St. Patrick's Cathedral is a madhouse because it's a block away from the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. But somehow, still, Father Haggerty is able to keep keep this contemplative view. I mean, literally. In St. Patrick's Cathedral, you can hear Saks Fifth Avenue show constantly. But anyway, I, I bring up Father Haggerty because he he wrote a book called, um, he has a series of books on the contemplative life and um, the one to come out in the, in the spring about St. John of the Cross, which is amazing. I, I was able to, to read it early and endorse it. But um, he wrote a book called Conversion. And the point about the book Conversion is not like one day you convert. It's your entire life is about conversion. And that's something Dorothy Day totally got. Like this is daily, hourly. You have to keep going back to God. And and as as you said before, Wesley, right, about authenticity. Am I actually living what I say that I'm I'm about, you know? And how do I become more of of who God made me to be? You know, live that fullest freedom. Um, I, I think that's that's key she to understanding. Clear, she was clearly a successful a social activist. Uh, she actually uh, fulfilled uh, her calling as she would see it, I think. Um, but y- you think that, uh, and you're part of the movement to see if she can become a saint. Why do you think that Dorothy Day should be a saint? Because she probably wouldn't think of herself that way. In fact, there's there's a famous quote where she said, don't call me a saint. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think, you know, 
Dorothy Day actually doesn't get a vote on this right now. But, <laughs> but I think her perspective at the time was what anybody's perspective should be as a human being living in the world. Um, no, no, I am not a finished product. Don't you dare call me a, a saint. I'm a sinner, you know? And uh, sometimes there's a danger if, if somebody writes about religion a lot, people think, oh, they must be a saint. No, <laughs> precisely because we're sinners, we write about God, you know, like need constant reminder. Um, but I think it's important because here's a woman who, like, if you read her letters, like there were times in her life, she was just lovesick over these two men who um, really mistreated her. And women can really resonate with that. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was a human being. I, they, there was just news that Pope Benedict is not Pope Benedict. Pope Francis is going to canonize um, Pope Paul the first. John Paul I, who was Pope for a very short period of time, and by all accounts was a good and holy man. But I don't want people to think that you have to be Pope or, or a priest or a nun to be a saint. You know, no, you can like live in the world and still be a saint. I, I have a friend who died um, last year on All Saints Day, Andrew Walther. He had been at the Knights of Columbus for a long time, and um, he was a, a husband and a father and um, very active in the world. And I'm convinced he was a saint. And he would have never thought that. And I even remember saying to him, he, he died of leukemia. And, um, and he was just, his, he suffered so beautifully in the midst of this. And was oh, like, wait a second, hold on. <laughs> he suffered so beautifully. You're going to have to discuss that now. <laughs> sure. Well, so you, you take on the suffering and it's brutal and it's awful. And yet, you know, you, you have this time still. And so you have to make use of it. Now, some, some days you can't, you like literally I remember being on the phone with him one day where he didn't realize he wouldn't have picked up the phone if he realized how bad he was. Um, but he just had to like cough <laughs> and, you know, like sometimes you just have to suffer and you, you, if you're, you can be of the free state of mind, you, you offer that to the mystery of redemption, like God used this for good. But what I mean by, by suffering well is partially that, partially he just loved in the midst of it. Like he knew he still had this time with his children, even though some of it was just on FaceTime while he's getting chemotherapy. Or when he finally was able to go home, it, he could only have his family around because his immune system was so compromised. And then COVID was around as well. Um, but he, he used every minute. And so I think that's what I mean by, by suffering well. Um, and as, as an offering, like whatever you want, God. And I remember saying to him one day, you know, if you stay on this road, and I said, if, 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 you know, this is the stuff of sainthood, um, you know, just, just, um, yeah, loving in the midst of it. And um, that's possible today. And that's why. And, I, I and think that runs contrary to the uh, theme of much of the West today, which is the, the purpose of society is to prevent suffering. Right. Uh, which leads, and we won't get into it, but it leads to the problem of, you know, okay, we're going to eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer. Uh, and, and it leads to some very dark places, as opposed to where you're saying that when people can embrace suffering, they can actually bring good for themselves or good for other people out of it. Right, right. And also a deeper uh, confidence, conviction that that God's in charge and has, knows the whole picture, and I don't. And I mean, that's something Andrew definitely, Dorothy Day definitely had a sense of. Like, I don't know it, what what's going on completely. I only see a small vision of it. Um, I have to say, with the pandemic, Wesley, one of the things that concerns me a lot is, and thanks be to God for modern medicine and. Um, I know we're both vaccinated and this is not an anti-vaccination statement, but from the very beginning, I was very concerned about, and Hey, I have hand sanitizer too, but like all of a sudden it's like in Purell, we trust as long as we have enough hand sanitizer, you know, then as long as we get lots of shots, you know, everything will be okay, but people are still going to die. If not COVID something else. And so like this, the sense for 
to have a, this false security, like that's not healthy because then when Omicron breaks out, people are all freaked out again. There was one political reporter on Twitter who basically I thought was breaking down on, on Twitter. You know, I got, I got my vac- vaccine. I got my kids vaccine. I think I, he got his booster. Like we're supposed to be okay now. Like, no, like we can't alleviate suffering, you know, and death. Like, we, no, we have a duty to mitigate it, but we can't eliminate it. Exactly. And, 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 and that's and what we, Dorothy did. We desire Davis to did. eliminate it. Yeah. She, and she was, she was mitigating it. She was reaching out to people who were in, in poverty and in desperation and trying to make it a little bit easier for them, right. which gets us into mysticism, uh, which is the subject of your book. Uh, what is mysticism? So the Catholic catechism describes it as the journey of our lives to union with God. And so this gets back to the Mary and Martha issue, right? Um, most people, and one of the thing, reasons I was attracted to this book, which I didn't want to write, I wanted someone else to write. I had proposed it as, it's part of a series that St. Benedict Press has, a Catholic publisher, and they have a year with the Bible, a year with Mary, a year with the saints, a year with other things. And um, I said, you should have a, a year with the mystics. And so then they said, yeah, you should write it. And I'm like, <laughs> I know, I, I, I'm not the qualified to write this. Um, but I'm so glad that I did. Um, because one of the things that um, I thought was so important to put in the book was don't just have St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and the people who we know are mystics have um, Mother Teresa and John Paul II, and Mother Cabrini, the patron saint of immigrants who uh, built so many orphanages and schools. Uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton built schools and hospitals. Um, Really important to have people who are known as doers because they couldn't have done what they did if they didn't spend time in prayer. And um, so one one of the reasons I was attracted to writing this book is um, a couple of years ago, um, more than a couple of years ago now, a friend of mine, Gary Jansen, um, wrote a book on, it was the Stations of the Cross with um, with like an Ignatian approach to it. So using the imagination. And, um, and anyway, Jennifer Fulweiler, um, who had a radio show at the time, wrote an introduction and said, um, the first time I met Gary Jansen, he said something and I realized, oh, wow, he's a mystic. And I gave my mother a copy of the book for Christmas that year. And she she read the introduction and said to me, next time I saw her, you said your friend wrote that book, but he's a mystic? And that's people's approach to the word mystic. Like this is something foreign and exotic and like no one can uh, ever approach it. And the fact of the matter is, no, you know, we all need to be contemplatives. And so mysticism is not something to be afraid of or think of as foreign or... This is this is part of, of who we need to be to um, tap into. You know, we have such a, a movement of people who are spiritual, not religious. I, part of what I was hoping, and like Target carries this book, which so so excites me. Um, I'm hoping that somebody picks it up who's attracted to the mysticism as sort of the spiritual kind of kind of encounter, and then maybe realizes that that mysticism is actually at the heart of the Christian faith. Um, you know, there's Augustine in here and, and so many people who I think would make people think, oh, wow, I, I didn't realize they were mystics. Um, you, you used the term contemplative uh, for people who might not be aware of what that means. Uh, describe a contemplative life. So one that's recollected, one that, that finds time for silence, that's probably about the most countercultural thing to do today, to fight for silence. I mentioned the writer Gary Jansen. He has a book called The 15-Minute Prayer Solution. And basically, he's, he's um, making an argument to people who think they're too busy to pray or to find time for some kind of silence. Um, 15 minutes a day is 1% of your day. Surely you can give 1% of your day to silence, to contemplation, to meditation, to God, you know, particularly if you're a religious believer, like if you can't give 1% of your day to God exclusively, like something needs to be rejiggered there, you know? Um, And of course you can, you can give your entire day to God. You can offer everything to God. um, But 
you need to have some silence to be able to, whether it's in front of scripture or in front of the tabernacle or, you know, a, a space in your room where you just are, are silent. Um, we need to fight for that time and to, to live a contemplative life. Um, start with 15 minutes. It's interesting. Um, almost every religious tradition has a mystical element. Mm-hmm. There's certainly mysticism in Hinduism and Buddhism there's mysticism in Judaism and Islam. Uh, the whirling dervishes are actually, they're not dancers. They're involved in a mystical practice uh, when mm-hmm. they do that, uh, that very famous twirling. So it seems to me that you're, you're speaking of something that goes beyond Christianity, but to something that is a deep yearning in the human heart. Yeah. So many people talk about the God-shaped hole in our hearts and that's a universal, um, I, I think, concept, um, uh, reality. And, and so, yeah, in all different religious faiths, um, we're trying to get at that. And even back to a Christian context, one, one of the things that, um, that is uh, often the case, uh, Trinity Sunday comes around in, in the springtime, and often you'll encounter a sermon where the priest says, well, this is a mystery. The Trinity, you know, three persons, one God, it's a mystery. Well, this is why being contemplative and mysticism is so important. You know, the idea of God is three persons, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and, and really like loving himself, loving these three persons and loving us at the same time. It's like this awesome reality that will never completely grasp, but it's important to pray about and to recognize, like, if this is true, this is amazing, you know, um, and want to understand more. Um, but you're never going to be able to write the perfect treatise on it. Um, but you want to, uh, like you were saying before about Dorothy Day, keep going deeper. Um, and, you know, reading, reading great commentaries like St. Saint, Saint Augustine on, on the Trinity. Um, but also just reading, uh, you know, in, in St. John, he has that beautiful colloquy that Jesus has with the Father. Um, and um, just thinking about that, the Son praying with the Father gives us some insight in how our prayer can be, you know, like very simple and personal. And, and um, oftentimes I think uh, people don't pray because they think it's more complicated than it needs to be. You know, I don't know how to pray. Just go in front of, just, you know, get yourself in a quiet spot and present yourself to God, you know? So that, that brings up a question of what is prayer? Prayer is, is what? encounter with God. Um, it's, um, you know, it can be just a simple conversation, you know, uh, I don't know if that sounds crazy to some people. Um, but it can be that it can be, um, opening up scripture and, um, and asking word, what, what do you want me to see here? Um, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, a million rosaries and, you know, all this rote prayer. Although I think that is very good too. Um, but the idea is to, to really encounter God in friendship. S- something beyond yourself, right? Right. I mean, it's right. not like the conversation we're having, as interesting as this is. Right. It's something else. Right. And it's not, yeah, me talking to myself, trying to figure out a problem. You know, it's it's really recognizing, acknowledging that there's something greater, you know, um, one of the countercultural themes and so much of your work is about this, Wesley, like we don't see ourselves so often today as created beings, like simply acknowledging, like I didn't come, I didn't make myself, I didn't come from nowhere, you know, just acknowledging that I'm a creation from a creator, um, you know, something that simple, even if, if you're not, you're not more established in any particular religious dom- um, denomination. One of the things that struck me during the heart of the shutdown, which was so hard for so many people, um, we can't go forward in our lives or as a country without gratitude, you know, like an appreciation. I remember one day, as silly as this is, bear in mind, I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, so the concept of sunrises and sundowns is kind of foreign to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was I was I was stuck somewhere in, in Connecticut, 
which of course was better than being in Manhattan at the time. And I discovered that in the evening, and so this was probably in, in um, April, 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 2020, I discovered that birds give concerts at night. <laughs> They're free, completely free as, as the sun, the, the sky changes color. And it's just like this amazing recognition that like, I didn't do this. You didn't do this. Like, obviously God must exist and have a plan because this is better than any art exhibit I've ever seen or any, any concert I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, the mystics you write about in your book are all Catholic. Uh, but it, is the book something that could help non-Catholics? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I, I wrote it for a Catholic publisher. I'm I'm Catholic, so so right. of course, um, that that was my focus. But um, but you also you have a range of people in here, and you know, I, I really think the book in many ways is about you know the search for meaning, which is a universal concept. I think that it's about trying to find peace, some hope that again, yeah, there's more to life than, than what we see. And also I think, I hope, you know, rather than um, picking up a life of the saint, which may, you know, in some cases may, however it's written, it may seem impossible. I think this just gives you little insights into the prayer lives of these saints. And, and one of the things that I found beautiful while I was putting it together was, you know, reading so many uh, different people. Some some of these people I, I knew very well um, going into this project. Some of them I didn't um, as much. But one thing that I, I, I found, going back to Mary and Martha too, you know, in the, in the prayer lives of, of all of these mystics, you saw the same God working differently at different times, but, but he's familiar in all of their prayer. Like, there's something beautifully consistent, even though they're they're unique. So you're saying there's a through line among all the various saints that you you, totally. you bring into totally. your into the book. No, nobody's I, trying to reinvent God. People are just trying to encounter the true God. We're almost out of time, but I'd like an example or two of the mystics about which you write, and perhaps not the more famous ones, but perhaps the ones that people might not have known. Well, some of the um, I'm just flipping through this now. Um, one of my favorite, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity is someone who I don't think is all that well known. And she had this beautiful, beautiful knowledge of the indwelling presence of the Trinity, which is something that we believe about baptism. When you're baptized, the, the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit live within you. Who that, was she and when did she live? So she lived um, in the um, 1800s. Mm-hmm. And um, just a beautiful, beautiful writings. Uh, she's probably a little more well-known St. Benedicta of the cross, Edith Stein, who died in Auschwitz. Right. Uh, beautiful, beautiful contemplative writings. There's somebody named, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the years. So, so don't ask, but St. Uh, John of St. Thomas. And he wrote um, beautifully about the gifts of the Holy spirit. And, you know, for anyone in the world who's looking for some courage uh, today, he's someone who, uh, who is really important to read. There's a Dominican named uh, Henry Suso who talks a lot about union with God, again, which is what mysticism was all about. He has some beautiful writings. Um, uh, someone who I, I put in here um, a couple of times who is more well-known is Catherine of Siena, whose writings are just extraordinary um, in terms of you really see what dialogue with God looks like. Um, there's also a saint, um, Saint Angela of Foligno, who uh, who uh, wrote again about about the Trinity in in really intimate ways. And Pope Francis actually, so I I spent an Advent in um, in Assisi in, a number of years ago, and Saint Fra- uh, Pope Francis had had just named her a saint, and the uh, the church was not prepared for that where her body was, and so I, I took the train there from Assisi, and and. I remember the the guy who worked at the church. He's like, impossible, impossible, because it was all locked up because they were doing construction. But I prayed outside, and that was sufficient. Could you give us an example of some of the writings you're talking about real quickly, because we're running out of time, but I'd love to have people hear just an example of some of the um, writings or prayers, perhaps, that one of these mystics uh, has written. 
Well, something something as simple as Mother Teresa, you know, who um, who, who, tells who is a about, con- who is a contemporary. So yeah, right. Um, Mother Teresa, I thought was really important to put in the book because she had such a simple approach to prayer, even though her life was so radical. And so, if you take a look at any of Saint Mother Teresa's writings, you really get a, a good approach to how to be simple with God. I also, I included in there, um, I started with St. John in the beginning and the end, because I think scripture is, is so key um, to, uh, to providing light in the, in the darkness. Um, but, um, but the majority of these, these um, excerpts are either from diary entries from these saints or from prayers that they wrote or from letters that they wrote. One of the most beautiful things you can read of saints are their letters, because that was really like interacting with people contemporary about practical spiritual matters. And that's something that I don't think we do enough of with one another. You know, we're told not to talk about politics and religion. I of course talk about both of them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So do or do not invite me to your dinner party. Um, (laughs) But um, read an also, example from your book, if you will. Just just one example, if you, it, that you think might be appropriate. You know, there are so many examples. I should have uh, I should have uh, prepared for this. Well, here's here's one from Mother Teresa, and this this is so. This book has 365 entries. No page is more than 400 words, so it's very accessible. And here is an example of of a very short one. Um, Mother Teresa writes, love is for today. Programs are for the future. We are for today. When tomorrow will come, we will see what we can do. Somebody is thirsty for water today, hungry for food today. Tomorrow, we will not have them if we don't feed them today. So be concerned with what you can do today. And that's really- That's very Martha. It's very Martha. That's very Martha. <laughs> so, so Mary led her to Martha. That's exactly and, uh, it. She couldn't get to the Martha point without the Mary time. Exactly. Exactly. That's very interesting. That's what, one of the reasons why Martha and Mary are two of my favorite characters, that whole uh, interaction between them. And they're a little bit of elbowing each other, you know, uh, over the, over the correct approach. Which is very human, right? Exactly. Exactly. And the, the, the point you, I think have been making with Dorothy Day and and your advocacy for her to become a saint and uh, your book is that mysticism and faith seeking truth is very human. Very human, very universal and nothing to be afraid of or think one is not worthy of or capable of because honestly, none of our us are without God, without spending time in contemplation, without encouraging one another there's the line from Hebrews, encourage one another today. I, I think um, that's how we have to live. That's how Dorothy Day lived. That's how Dorothy, Mother Teresa lives. That's how we have to live. And, you know, living at this time where there's such, um, there's such anger and division, and even within church communities, um, yeah, really thinking of one another, seeing one another as human, as I, in this struggle together. We never know what someone else is suffering. You know, one thing that struck me over Christmas is all these pictures people post on Facebook of like the perfect family picture with pajamas in front of the the Christmas tree. And I always think what was happening the minute before and the minute (laughs) after, you know, I know there was a baby crying. We don't post that on Facebook. Yeah, that's very interesting. But yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and so forgiving each fun. other. I think we need to get a little more into forgiving each other. And that that is not necessarily a, a Christian concept, certainly not exclusively. Uh, I think it's a human concept. Uh, forgiveness breeds reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think we're in a time where we need reconciliation. And we can't have, we can't have um, forgiveness without humility. Yeah, exactly. And, and from a Christian perspective, we are forgiven and, and there's uh, parables about that. (laughs) You better also forgive Uh, the Lord's prayer, uh, you know, forgive my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. I mean, there's a certain connection there to be from being forgiven and forgiving. Well, we're out of time, but I would like to ask one last question. What's next for Catherine Jean Lopez? Oh goodness! Whatever the next moment brings, I'm so blessed to be um, 
as you mentioned earlier, at National Review for 25 or so years. Um, it's such a, a blessed place to be. We, m- Many of us um, who have been there for a while were reading uh, Bill Buckley in National Review when we were teenagers, total dorks, I know. But, um, <laughs> so we get to now get paid to be total dorks. And I'm so blessed by the National Review Institute where I run the Center for Religion and Culture and Civil Society. And so I really get to focus on the issues that I care about and bring people together on some of those issues like like adoption um, and other issues on civil society. And so I just look forward to continuing to do those things and grateful that anyone ever wants to have my opinion on anything. Well, that's terrific. Thank you for your passion, Catherine. Thank you, Wesley, for all the beautiful work that you do. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.